Hello, my name is Liam Doherty. I'm a senior partner with Stratus Consulting, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest episode of the Stratus Insights podcast series. Stratus Consulting is a partner-led consultancy comprising the most experienced team of employment relations and industrial relations practitioners in Ireland. Each partner has over 30 years experience in supporting, guiding and advising employers on strategic ER projects. Stratus operates at leadership team, chief executive and board levels to support organisations who want to lead and drive change, particularly where there is a strategic employment relations dimension. Over the next three episodes of our Insights podcast, we continue to focus on the question, are we heading towards some form of mandatory union recognition in Ireland? In each episode, we address particular aspects of this question. Given the importance of the topic, I'm delighted to be joined by Brennan McGinty, Managing Partner Stratus Consulting, and Kevin Duffy, former Chairman of the Labour Court. In the second of four episodes, we focus on the IR Act 2015, the so-called right to bargain legislation, and discuss why it remains largely unused. We'll also explore the reasons for the shift in trade union strategy to focus on the European dimension. Thinking of the right to bargain legislation that we have, the framework of uh, you know, IRX from 2001 up to 2015, it's probably fair to say that you know in the last number of years, it, it's remained largely unused by the trade unions. Mm. And I'm just curious as to you know your view as to why that is so. Um, yeah, look, uh, we, we won't get into the whole history of it uh, necessarily beyond what I've, what I've discussed, but um, I suppose it's safe to say that, look, despite the efforts to render it fit for purpose in 2015, um, uh, and, and one of the important, I suppose, steps forward, which uh, I personally thought was a very significant um, uh, step forward for the trade unions was the inclusion for the first time in our industrial relations um, legislation, an actual definition of collective bargaining, mm, right? Mm, mm, but mm. again, the point about that is it, it, it restates, you know, what we all know to be the case around uh, that comprising voluntary voluntary engagements or, or negotiations. Um, and I suppose it's that that's the kind of key point that, mm. look, Amidst all the to and fro on this issue, we have to remember this has to be still about a voluntary exercise. Now, that legislation, from an employer point of view, uh, we know the trade unions had issues uh, with it as a result of uh, their, their decision strategically or tactically or however you choose to, to call it, to, to not pursue cases really under the, the, the Act. But from an employer point of view, remember, it wasn't all sweetness and light either because you know, there were no thresholds, no minimum thresholds. And we know from the, the jurisprudence, generally speaking, look, in practical terms, the thresholds, whatever, you know, different views maybe, but mm. whatever, 25 to 30 percent or whatever of, of, of a particular greater group were, were expected to be uh, involved. Um, um, you know, the, the, the court could decline to investigate a dispute if, if the number of workers were, were insignificant, albeit, mm. as I say, that, that wasn't uh, spelled out in the legislation. And we had a very light touch uh, approval mechanism where the trade unions, you know, a general secretary of a trade union simply had to sign off on, on the membership based on a, on a declaration. And I suppose the, the, the issue for, for, for some employers in the real world of, of these sorts of cases is that 
there was a failure to recognise that the outcome of some of these cases, even though they were being prosecuted on behalf of a relatively small number, some of whom may have may well have been disaffected people, not always. Some people were genuinely looking to be represented, uh, uh, but uh, but very much a minority in in the organisation. But the outcome could have huge implications for the organisation as as a whole. And one of the concerns was that the system was not rec- recognising that. Now, where where we got to then, as we know, is we've had a, a you know a trickle of of of, of cases. That appears to have been a tactical decision by the by the trade unions, who you know, having uh, looked at that, decided uh, it wasn't worth uh, getting too involved in, in 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 that infrastructure, and decided that there was the potential of a bigger prize, um, and an, you know, potentially around establishing some sort of a, a rights based outcome around collective bargaining or or, or 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 something that would be akin to that, and what we've had in the meantime then is. Uh, cases being pursued through a PR agenda, perhaps being taken to the to the Labour Court under the traditional route of the, of the sixty nine Act, uh, and and uh, again we have all of that being being um, done in a manner of speaking that doesn't take account of these wider the wider presence of these uh, sophisticated engagement models, and it, it seems to me that's saying one or two things about where the where the trade unions got to. One is that they decided, look, um, they weren't in a position to to cultivate membership levels of the twenty five or thirty percent, and 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 you know, as as in reality, became maybe the test uh, to to meet uh, what was expected under the act, or they simply decided, look, uh, to give up on that mechanism and to pursue a, a, a different a different strategy, and that it seems to me is 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 now where where we're at, uh, and. I suppose the next challenge is to see can the right balance be found in terms of the outcome. Mm. Thanks, Ben. Kevin, uh, I suppose the, the same question to you. I mean, what, why have unions in Ireland apparently yeah. turned their backs on the piece of legislation that unions in other jurisdictions might bite your hand off for? Yeah, well, perhaps to go back a bit, and I, I, I think it's important to go back a bit, perhaps even to, into the last question, because Brendan made a point, and I agree with him. There are many employers... Uh, who don't deal with trade unions, but they have internal mechanisms and they have decent paying conditions. That is undoubtedly true. But there are an awful lot of employers that don't, who don't deal with trade unions. And the reason they don't deal with trade unions is because they have poor pay and conditions of employment and want to retain that. Now, it was that type of employment that the 2001 Act was initially focused on, right? And Brendan is right in saying it was a, a a unique approach to dealing with a thorny problem. And I think it's significant that in the period from about 2002 when it started going up to 2007 when it went up on the rocks in, in the, following a Supreme Court uh, decision, um, to some extent, this whole debate around recognition of was abated somewhat. You know, said this is this is a mm, that's no, fair comment. Yeah, yeah. And, and and what? But what was the underlying rationale for the two thousand and one act? And I was around, as was Brendan, and I suppose we all have our own version of. We all came from from different angles because I st- when 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 the discussions around this started, I was in Congress, 
And by the time it came to fruition, I was in the Labour Court, some responsibility for applying it. But anyway... Um, Poacher turned gamekeeper. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> but anyway, um, the underlying rationale was to bring about a situation where essentially employers could have choices. Right? They could engage with unions and engage in collective bargaining. And they, if they did that, the Act had no application. And they might agree or they might not agree. But it didn't matter. Right? They, they were immune from the effects of the Act. But if they chose not to engage in collective bargaining, as was clearly their right, then there was a mechanism by which that could be compensated for. And the compensatory mechanism was that the Labour Court could in fact determine whether the terms and conditions were adequate or not. And it didn't do that by picking figures off the top of his head. Uh, it did it by really asking itself the question, if these people had access to collective bargaining, what would the likely outcome of that be? Right? And that meant that the primary focus in drawn comparison was on employments which were analogous but in which terms and conditions were in fact negotiated. And that approach was upheld by the, the High Court, if you, as I'm sure you recall in the Ashford Castle case, where the High Court said that's exactly what the Act was about and that the, the, the very considerable weight, I think were the words that Judge uh, Clark, as he then was, uh, used in saying very considerable weight should be given to the product of collective bargaining as opposed to unnegotiated rates. And that worked quite well. What happened in 2015, and I think this is what's at the, the kernel of it, right? It's broadened out now. And now if there is a case, uh, uh, there are two questions that the court has to determine. One is, are the rates of pay out of line Right in 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 the particular employment that to which the dispute relates, and obviously, uh, it has to go on then and say, well, what should the rates be? Right, but they're obliged now to look at the totality of the sector, all similar employments, and in a lot of cases, the type of employments that unions would have invoked the 2001 Act to uh, to deal with are in sectors where a lot of them, are, everyone's on the minimum wage, the minimum wage. And given that the court is obligated to take into account the totality of the sector, right, it's un unlikely to produce a result. There's also an obligation, of course, on the um, union to establish that the rates of pay are, in fact, out of line. And there is no mechanism by which they can have, have access to that information. Very often it's because you're, you're talking about sectors where there is very, very low levels of, of trade union organisation. I don't think there's a problem in terms of the numbers. Right? And um, I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem basically is saying, how do you deal with a situation where you have to look at the totality? Now, it's fine 
if you have a, an one employment or two employments within a, a particular sector that are outliers, you know, that are below. And you know, it's, it's in everyone's, uh, to everyone's benefit that that sort of comp- unfair competition be addressed. Right? But where you have a situation, and there are many sectors that we can think of, but I won't get into mentioning them, but there are many sectors we know where there are very low levels of trade union organisation, no collective bargaining, no collective agreements. Uh, and if one of those, if, 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 if people from one of those employments join the union and the union wants to invoke this act, They've no, they, 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 they've nothing to compare with, other than employments that are in the same position uh, as the, the 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 people who are looking for the improvement, and that's a that's a practical difficulty uh, that arose from the two thousand and fifteen amendments. Because Brendan is right. I mean, it, at one level, what happened in two thousand and fifteen was that the decision in the Reiner case was effectively reversed because the, the Supreme Court and that took a, uh, a a certain view of what constitutes uh, collective bargaining. Right? But that was reversed by legislation. We have right, an excellent definition now and an excellent definition of what constitutes an accepted body. Right? That's fine. But in the process, they also reversed Ashford Castle. So it's now no longer permissible for the court to say we'll focus on negotiated rights right, as being the appropriate comparator. And it, if you like, it, it, it changed, if you like, the underlying rationale for the, uh, for the act in the first place, which I think was to say, well, can you put people who don't have access to collective bargaining in a position that they would be in if they did have that access? And it, that's, I think that's, that's a huge part of the problem. Okay. I, look, there's so much covered in, you know, in both your answers to, to that question. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's a topic we could spend the day on in itself. But look, can I, in the interest of time, can I move the conversation into the, into the EU dimension? Um, mm. And maybe, Kevin, if I can ask you, in, t- in, you know, in terms of, of your assessment of, of, you know, the union strategy over the past five, ten years, uh, is it fair to say there's a, a shift uh, to focus on the EU dimension to see how that might be able to support collective bargaining here in Ireland? Oh, I think that no, there's no doubt there is because, uh, and, and it's not just from Ireland, it's, 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 uh, it's a part of the, we know about the, the minimum wage uh, directive and what that has to say. Um, though perhaps misunderstood in some respects because the the that directive is about minimum pay but it deals with collective bargain, uh, bargaining coverage but that's seen as a, a means to an end the end being to try and improve pay levels in, in low paid employments but um, there is because Ireland is 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 different to the rest of Europe and you know, not necessarily in terms of, of trade union density. It's falling all over Europe, right? Outside of the Scandinavian countries. It's um it's it's falling. But collective bargaining coverage is it remains extremely high. As I said, ninety ninety um ninety nine percent in France, uh uh ninety eight percent in Austria. Um 
it's you know they're it's it, it, it's it's quite high. We're mm. we're very much out of line there. So yes, the the, the trade union movement though, I think has been for the last number of years, from what I can see, uh, become more involved in uh, deep trying to address this question through their the European Trade Union Confederation, of which they're an affiliate. And um, there are obvious advantages in that for them because, you know, if there's, if there's real, uh, they might find that it's easier to convince the member states uh, in the European Union that collective bargaining coverage is a good thing because they already have that. So you're not asking them to bring about anything that they don't already have. And it might be an easier way of bringing about some sort of a political initiative than trying to deal with it in a, in a domestic setting. So I can see where they're coming from on that. Brendan, your, your assessment of that? Um, I, I, I Look, I think this has been probably the most significant move uh, really to internationalise the, the, the issue, uh, obviously on the back of um, potential legislative arrangements uh, that would occur in in Europe, um, but again, just for the benefit maybe of of, of listeners, it's important, uh, as I understand it at least, uh, that you know over the last couple of years there there would have been a, a you know a fair old debate, obviously within the trade union movement, as to what would be the better course of action, because as I understand it. Uh, and as Kevin would be aware, there would be, you know, some would have advocated, for example, you know, a referendum to bring about const- a constitutional change to, to provide for, um, you know, a right to collective bargaining or, or, or some such. Um, uh, but of course, you know, the problem at the mo- for them at the moment is that the constitution is a, is a double edged sword. Yes, it guarantees the rights of citizens to uh, farm associations and trade unions and so on, but as we know, the co- the courts also interpret that as providing for obligations for um, where employers don't have to to recognise such such bodies. Um, and uh, I think, in fairness, it would appear that Congress, you know, has identified. Look, there there are clearly risks associated with a, a, a you know going the constitutional referendum approach. Never mind the political. Issues that that would 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 throw up, um, and instead have have decided to focus on the potential for you know a directive on harmonising collective bargaining in some shape or form across uh, across uh, Europe and the tactical advantage, as as I understand it, that that would mean is that if that were to fall out of Europe, so to speak, then that would obviously trump any domestic arrangements in in in, in Irish law. And obviously, would would apply across across Europe, but uh, Kevin has mentioned the the, the minimum wage uh, directive, and you know that absolutely is significant. And and uh, you know, in conversations uh, that that I have had with with organisations, when you speak about this, most people say, you know, adequate minimum wage. What's that got to do with us? Uh, mm. Which is perfectly understandable. Uh, but when you tell them. You know that well. It's not just about the adequate minimum wage because one of the uh, mechanisms that is being talked about to ensure uh, that there is an adequacy of minimum wage uh, uh, across the European uh, Union uh, is that uh, member states 
should do more to promote uh, collective bargaining and in particular uh, uh, collective bargaining coverage because within the directive it talks about uh, that being an obligation on a member state where there's uh, I think a 70% of mm-hmm. workers mm-hmm. not not, yeah. not being covered uh, by collective bargaining. Um, and when you unbundle that, th- that throws up lots of issues. First of all, you know, the trade unions uh, and, and, and others uh, on, on particularly obviously on the left have managed, it seems to, to, to me at least, to, you know, take that issue and turn it into an opportunity to promote the collective bargaining uh, uh, coverage agenda, uh, which is fair enough that, that, that that's their, their, their prerogative. But I think, you, you know, employers out there uh, and I think for Ireland Inc, it needs to be really well understood about the implication of that because one of the core assumptions is that you know collective bargaining is the only means through which people can secure better terms and conditions and I suppose that's uh, and yes of course that's the role of trade unions understand that right but the difficulty here is there are lots of good employers out there who are doing good things with their staff who end up being collateral damage potentially at least if we get this if we get this stuff wrong and and for me uh, I suppose the, the 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 issue is this in terms of if we do get this wrong, we we'll end up with a situation where, you know, the trade unions will, will be in a position to practice voluntarism in areas in which they're they're strongest, and create more of a regulated space, particularly in parts of the private sector where they don't have have strength, and where potentially, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen, right? But in a worst case scenario where Employers are are compelled in some way to to engage in, in in collective bargaining, and and for me that's kind of the the kernel of this. But I think the the minimum wage issue, uh, I think, has a bit of road to run uh, as 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 yet, and a laudable policy objective is being is being used to advance that kind of wider application of collective bargaining, and we 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 understand that we understand uh, why, but again, at the back of all of this. Um, I think it'll be fascinating to see if that minimum wage directive comes to pass, and it probably will in some version, what that actually means in term for Ireland in terms of promotion uh, of coverage of collective bargaining and what that looks like. And at the fa- on the face of it, that seems to, su- to suggest uh, that a-, a particular area of focus will be in that whole area of uh, sectoral bargaining. That concludes the second episode of our Are We Heading Towards Some Form of Mandatory Union Recognition in Ireland podcast. Listen out for the third episode in this series, where we'll chat to Brennan McGinty and Kevin Duffy once again on this topic. But we will look at multinational enterprise in Ireland and discuss whether there's any real appreciation of the need to protect the special position of these employers who offer market-leading remuneration and benefits and pursue high engagement practices with their employees.